Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Welcome to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, I'm Dr. Matthew State, Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at UCSF. This is the second program in a new Commonwealth Club speaker series on mental health, supported by the John Pritzker Family Fund and dedicated to the memory of Nancy Friend Pritzker. We're tremendously grateful uh, for the support the fund has provided, not only for this series, but for uh, advancing mental health clinical care research and education at UCSF. This series is intended to address the most pressing mental health challenges we face, with a particular focus on combating stigma and prejudice. It was also conceived of to highlight the power of partnership in addressing these extremely difficult issues at a time when it's tempting to give into nihilism about problems such as homelessness, the opioid and methamphetamine epidemics, childhood exposure to violence, rising rates of suicide. I feel compelled to start this evening by offering a more optimistic view. Not since the height of the AIDS crisis has there been a stronger, more committed alliance to take on major public health challenges in San Francisco, bringing together the city, advocacy groups, the medical and academic communities led by a longstanding partnership between UCSF and Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, the philanthropic and business communities. In the mid-1980s, we saw the transformative potential of this type of collaboration. There's simply no reason we can't harness this again to tackle the critical mental health needs of our community. In that spirit, our subject tonight is mental health, youth, and criminal justice. The widespread use of the criminal justice system in the United States to address the burden of mental illness, particularly among vulnerable populations, is a national tragedy. Nowhere is this more the case than for our youth. 70% of adolescents entering juvenile detention centers have diagnosable mental health needs. It's also the case that first-time court-involved adolescents who are diverted from detention and supervised in the community have very significant mental health treatment needs as well. One in three have a history of psychiatric diagnosis. One in five have a history of psychiatric hospitalization. One in two have current psychiatric symptoms that require treatment. In order to prevent the development of a pipeline to chronic homelessness, substance misuse, and justice involvement in adulthood, we must determine how San Francisco and other communities can efficiently and effectively meet the mental health needs of system-involved youth. Some of the critical questions we face, particularly with the planned closure of the San Francisco Juvenile Detention Center, is what, where, when, and how should services be provided? How can we ensure that these are effective in preventing adverse trajectories into adulthood? What role should and must the justice system play? And how will these decisions impact society at large? It's my pleasure now to introduce our distinguished panel. Dr. Anton Nagusabland, MD, Director of Mental Health Reform at the San Francisco Department of Public Health and a faculty member in the Department of Psychiatry at UCSF. He's played a leading role throughout his career in promoting integrated care between primary care providers and mental health professionals to treat psychiatric and substance use disorders. Dr. Nagusa Bland has been a major force in combating some of the most challenging issues at the intersection of mental health, homelessness, incarceration, and substance abuse, serving until his recent appointment in the city as medical director of psychiatric emergency services at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center. Nicole Elmore is a community youth activist and program assistant for Opportunities for All, 
Mayor London Breed's Youth Initiative for Workforce Development, partnered with the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. Nicole has loved ones who are incarcerated and says she's quite familiar with a hostile living environment, family homelessness, and the impact of gentrification. She's 23 years old, a recent college grad. She works with youth to develop employment skills and employers to develop their skills in working with youth. She plans eventually to attend medical school. Patrick Kennedy is former US Democratic Congressperson from Rhode Island and a noted mental health advocate. He's fought to end discrimination against mental illness, addiction, and other brain diseases. From a legislative standpoint, he's best known as the lead sponsor of the groundbreaking Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which was passed with bipartisan support and signed into law by President George W. Bush in 2008. In addition to the federal parity law, Mr. Kennedy authored and co-sponsored dozens of bills during his time in Congress to increase the understanding and treatment of psychiatric and neurological disorders. After the death of his father, Senator Edward Kennedy in 2011, Patrick Kennedy left Congress to devote his career to mental health advocacy. And Dr. Marina Toulouse-Shams, PhD, is a professor in the UCSF Department of Psychiatry, director of the Division of Infant, Child, and Adolescent Psychiatry at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center, and former director of the Rhode Island Family Court Mental Health Clinic, which was created in 2006 with support from Patrick Kennedy's Rhode Island Congressional Office. She's a child forensic psychologist. (laughs) She's a child forensic psychologist who's committed her career to improving the health mental health, substance use, and legal outcomes for justice-involved youth. Dr. Toulouse-Sham's federally funded research is among the first to study the mental health needs of court-involved youth who do not get sent to detention and to build effective data-driven community responses to meet the needs of these youth and their families. And finally, our moderator tonight, Dan Ashley, news anchor for ABC7 Television News in San Francisco and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Uh, Dan has more than 30 years' experience in journalism and has received the prestigious DuPont Columbia Award and Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence in Journalism. Now, please welcome our panelists, and I'll turn the program over to Dr. Uh, Dr. Say, thank you very much for that wonderful introduction of our distinguished panel. Good evening. How are you all this evening? We are going to have a terrific and spirited discussion on a very important issue that doesn't get enough attention, but it will here tonight at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, as always, in my line of work. Anytime I can be in front of a large group of people who can't change the channel, (laughs) Um, it's a pleasure. Uh, right now, by the way, on the 6 o'clock, we would just be about starting sports about now, so uh, I'm glad to be here with you tonight. I'm, I'm going to begin uh, by a- asking all of our panelists, each one individually, just to frame from their different disciplines and perspectives uh, what the discussion, what the issues are that we'll be talking about tonight, and from their perspective, what is uh, most important. And we'll start uh, with Dr. Anton Deguse bland uh, Anton, why don't you tell us, from your perspective, uh, the kinds of things that you tend to focus on in this issue regarding mental health, youth, and incarceration in the justice system. Thank you for that question. And I also want to say thank you to the Commonwealth Club for coordinating this event and to UCSF and the Pritzker family for the support on this very important topic. And I think evidenced by the size of the crowd tonight, there are a lot of people that are interested in this discussion. And it's, it's a really important time. I am the director for mental health reform for the city and county of San Francisco. And so I accepted this position about nine months ago at the request of the mayor of San Francisco to come and and help consult about developing a coherent strategy for meeting the needs of individuals experiencing mental illness, 
substance use, and homelessness, the intersection of those three. And in doing this work, we are endeavoring at this point to fundamentally shift how people are experiencing behavioral health care in San Francisco. I think it's important to acknowledge the, the very important work taking place with Juvenile Hall and the impending closure of that facility to think about the continuum of care of services provided to those young people to maintain their stability in the community. Uh, we are focusing our work at the, at the health department from the reform efforts on what you may have heard is 4,000 individuals. These 4,000 individuals facing homelessness, serious mental illness and substance use. And as we think about trying to shift and design services and, and the focus of the services to meet those individuals' needs, we are hopeful and, and that the entire population will benefit. In terms of where I think we need to focus as we think about the community-based services, I, I am a proponent of what's known as sequential intercept mapping and thinking about our continuum for crisis services to be able to be delivered effectively. I'll talk more about that as we go, but I do think thinking about how do you support someone to be in the community and stay in the community is where we would need to be. Okay, excellent, thank you for that. Uh, Nicole Elmore, community youth activist, a future physician. <laughs> We'd love to hear. <laughs> <laughs> you start medical school, you won't have time to sit with, okay. with, with us okay. on panels like this. <laughs> Please, from your perspective, and I'm going to ask you a lot of specific questions about your interesting background and personal connection with this, but first just frame the, the discussion here tonight from your perspective. Okay. Uh, well, one, thank you all for being here. I have like this everlasting gratitude for you all to be in this conversation because it is so imperative now more than ever. Uh, as mentioned, I work um, with Opportunities for All, where we do a pipeline for 13 to 24-year-olds for a paid internship under Mayor Breed. So it's her initiative for workforce development. Um, also, um, as I said, I'm newly graduated, so I'm so optimistic about life. I'm new to adulting. I'm happy about working for a nonprofit and paying bills. So that tells you, that tells you my perspective right there. Uh, but importantly, um, I come from a, a very social disparity background, um, if I'm being transparent and that's how I, you know, choose to live my life very wholehearted um, and try and be vulnerable, uh, my brother was sentenced to 22 years um, two months ago. So, yeah, it's, it's very raw for not only myself, but my family. And as we start this journey together. And so when I think about rolling back the things that we failed at as a community, I get to my perspective, which is, um, as you should know, or most of you will know about the adverse um, childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And for me, these traumas that not only my brother or I or many of you or all of you, everyone has experienced, um, it's how do we look at it? And how do we give them an accurate resource box or um, I like to call a toolkit because I work with um, youth groups every day. And so we work on building toolkits and those are our resources. So they may not be able to go and get resources at a certain facility, but we can do things within our own, you know, groups, communities, homes to build this. I also think it's imperative to look at um, when parents, um, if I use myself and my family, my brother went 
went undiagnosed with ADHD um, up until his adult life. And then he was diagnosed with PTSD in his early adulthood life because of the traumas he experienced here in San Francisco. Um, We had to relocate. We experienced homelessness, a lot of things, but they were never treated. And he never even had the resource Rolodex. And when I think of my mom and my my father, they face the stigma in our community. Mm -hmm. Um, Being African-American, it just it wasn't there, the support and even how to navigate through. And so when I look at um, my brother's life or as others, it's like a a bucket of water. And I can see like the holes of how the water is leaking out. Mm -hmm. And for right now, it's like, oh my God, like for me, I'm with these kids every day. I'm like, oh, I know how to patch it up, but uh, we have to get so many more resources. So I think Mm -hmm. that adverse traumas are very important and, you know, destigmatizing the misconceptions that's associated with mental health and the justice system. Thank you, Nicole. Very well said. Uh, that I like the bucket of water with holes in it. <laughs> Patrick, that's a great uh, analogy. Uh, Patrick Kennedy, you spent so much of your adult life working to nationally to patch those holes. Frame mm. the argument and discussion for us from your point. Well, I'm sorry I have to follow you. You are so <laughs> great at articulating this from such a personal point of view and so eloquently that if you don't go into medicine, maybe (laughs) stay away from politics, especially especially if any member of my family's on the ballot, I don't want us to lose because you've got got it. You've got it. Such power. You've got so much power. Um, And so I think the two words I heard from uh, both of our previous speakers were comprehensive. and, and, And that is important because that doesn't, Uh, really exist too much uh, in this system, which is unfortunate. And and the adverse childhood experiences, and when we know what impacts and puts people at risk, and yet we don't have and design strategies to try to mitigate that impact. Um, So, you know, what we do in policymaking is we need to have the solutions mapped to the problems, And if you don't do that, then you're never going to enact the right uh, solutions and you're never going to pass the right kind of uh, legislation to help address them. So that's what I've been working on. I think it's a big impediment for us to seek general improvement in the public health crisis of our time, which is obviously uh, overdose and suicide. And uh, the reason why it goes unchecked and, and even in the commentary that Matt had regarding uh, HIV AIDS as an example of how the country came together to address that uh, public health crisis. Um, We were losing 53,000 Americans and we immediately started appropriating over $24 billion a year. Mm. Um, We have had this epidemic of suicide and overdose for years now. And up to three years ago, it was 500 million. And last year, we, booped, you know, we bumped it up all the way to 6 billion, which is still a fraction when you compare it to the AIDS money. When you compare it in life lost, it's, we, you know, we lose twice as many people. Um, so to be per- perfectly mercenary about it, there's clearly something amiss when the country can spend trillions on cancer, uh, which is justified, uh, but no one 
questions it. We can spend all this money on HIV AIDS as a public health crisis. And this, we can't even scratch the surface mm. of it by even appropriating a modest fraction of, of what we spend in other public health crises, even though it's claiming twice as many um, lives. So I would frame this in the big picture that we're, we as a culture do not want to look at these issues and we're in collective denial. And, and two, the best way to see that is the lack of money that we appropriate uh, to address a comprehensive approach to this and to address the prevention that's going to be necessary to deal with it. In so many ways, we prioritize by how much money we spend on certain projects. That's a lot to unpack there, Patrick. Thank you very much. We'll get to, into a lot of that. Uh, Dr. Marina uh, Tulu-Shams, it's your turn. How would you frame the argument uh, from your perspective as professor of UCSF Department of Psychiatry? So now I'm falling all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's no fair, right? I actually would like to hire Nicole, too, so. <laughs> to come and work with us at San Francisco General to um, shift how this city thinks about increasing access to mental health and substance use services for our justice-involved youth. Uh, this is, we, we actually know what to do as a field in child mental health. Hmm. We actually have interventions that we know that have data behind them. Mm -hmm. And we have a huge barrier in terms of figuring out how to get those interventions and make them available and the treatments available to these youth that fit the statistics that Dr. State reported, right? Which is that 50% or one out of every two child, adolescent that's coming into the justice system, first time contact, is having psychiatric symptoms that meet criteria for the need for treatment. And yet we don't have a systematic way of making that access available for any and all court-involved, justice-involved youth. And so why do we have wellness centers in schools, but we don't have wellness centers in the family court? Why is that not a thing? Um, there are lots of pieces to figure out around this, right, with the legal aspects, but the same is true for the schools with FERPA, which is uh, the educational kind of equivalent to protecting information, educational-related information is the equivalent what we deal with in our medical field, HIPAA, right? And so there are lots of things that we would have to think about, but the Rhode Island Family Court Clinic, if I can toot our own horn for just a second, of course. Uh, was, is an amazing model for increasing access to all court-involved youth. So we have done an amazing job in San Francisco around our collaborative court models, which are the courts that serve youth who have particular wellness needs or particular mental health needs. But those decisions to get to those courts are still justice-related decisions. They're not mental health and substance use assessment um, decisions. And in Rhode Island, this is a inter, an integrated clinical mental health service that's co-located in the courts, similar to what we're trying to do in our pediatric primary care settings and having mental health clinicians integrated and collaborating. And since 2006, they've served over 2,000 youth and they provide emergency services for youth who show up to the court who need a psychiatric assessment. The judges are require are asking for consultations. So over the past decade, they have been learning about developmental science on the fly. It's informing recommendations and linking to the community. And now they're providing treatment on site to approximately now 100 youth a year. So 
we, uh, my framework is about how do we increase access? And the last thing I'll say about increasing access that's really key is how we're going to leverage technology to do this. So um, youth and their families are using technology. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no reason why we shouldn't be thinking about how we leverage technology for our justice-involved youth and families to promote access to care. Okay, Marina, thank you very much. Uh, let's dive in. As I ask each of you questions, I may, I may direct them to a specific person, but feel free to uh, chime in if you have something else to say on that particular question. I'd like to start with, uh, we have this, this figure, 50% of people involved in the juvenile, juvenile justice system have some kind of psychiatric issue or uh, something that needs to be looked at. I, I'd like to know, has that increased in the last few years? Are we just more aware of it now? Because it, it seems to me that there are more young people interacting with the ju- juvenile justice system probably than ever before. I don't think I think that number has increased. I don't have the figures, but it's increased over the last uh, 20 years. Has uh, are we just more aware of psychiatric issues involving youth or are there more psychiatric issues involving youth? Um, OK, I right will. Uh, I'll take a stab at that. Sure. <laughs> um, so. This is actually related to something that Dr. Nugusi Bland said um, when he talked about the different, um, what we call intercepts or uh, positions in the justice system that youth can get involved. Um, So detention being at the far end of the system and what we call diversion or keeping youth in the community, whether it's through probation or through community-based programs um, that monitor youth. And, um, and so actually what's shifted is that 80% of youth who come into the justice system um, now are diverted from detention. So we used to have much higher rates of youth who were detained. We still have youth who are detained. Um, But the earlier studies were showing with very large numbers of youth in detention from Chicago and other urban centers that it was actually upwards of 70 to 80 percent of those youth who were were meeting criteria for psychiatric diagnosis in that setting. Um, So I actually don't think that we've seen an increase in the number of youth who are in the justice system. We've just seen more of a shift to the community. And what has lagged behind, and, and this is part of the fourth wave of juvenile justice reform, which is to really focus on on diversion and keeping youth out of detention, what's lagged behind is how do we meet the behavioral health needs in the community in a systematic way because um, they were being really addressed in detention with larger numbers of youth. Excellent. Anyone else on this point? All right. I want to touch on something that Patrick mentioned, that this is something that we have not really talked about as a national conversation, local conversation, statewide conversation. Uh, as much as we should, and we don't spend nearly as much money on this issue as we do so many other uh, health, public health issues. I'd like to explore a little bit about why that is the case. You know, many years ago, we didn't talk about autism in children's families or any other sort of disorder or, or difficulty. We are at least beginning to address this, but we, we have reached this tipping point of this crisis point, it seems to me, with juvenile justice and mental health. And at least we're talking about it. Uh, Nicole, uh, I'm going to ask Patrick maybe chime in on that. But first, Nicole, let me uh, 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 reflect on something that you said about when your brother was diagnosed and, and, and faced the challenges that he faced and then got into the juvenile justice system, that it was difficult to talk about it in your community. Tell us a little bit about why that stigma exists and, and what that felt like, how that affected you, your family and friends. Uh, well, I think... Um 
I have a niece. Um, she is 11, and she has a very rare genetic disorder. But you can see it. She's in a wheelchair. She has a jejuno tube, mm. right, for a feeding machine. We're there, right, when, you know, somebody looks at her, you know, once asked question, my sister is like, this is who she is. And so, you know, passionate about it. But mental health, it's no face. Anyone can be dealing with it. And so it's no pinpoint visually to know. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times when we can see something, then it's tangible. We know what it is. Uh, I think personally within my community, um, being a lot of times being faith-based, um, we just stick to what we know. So we have our faith. And I'm a, I'm a woman of faith, so not like anything like that. But sure. um, <laughs> We just stick to our faith, and then we talk to what I call our wise counsel. So it may be one person, a mom, an aunt, a father, an uncle, right? But we just talk to these people. And a lot of times it's like, okay, let's suppress it, and let's keep moving. Or a lot of times when a child is super active, then it's kind of like, oh, well, they're maybe naughty, maybe need a timeout, right? Let's, let's do some behavioral things. But it's never looking at the different factors that may be causing these things. And so I think... Um, a lot of times what I see, because I do work with youth and parents, is that um, it's just not a tone for it. We don't talk about it. And if we do, parents are so afraid of what will happen to their child if they're labeled. That's right. If they, if, if they, if they have this attached to them, what happens? If, if I have a, a seven-year-old um, black or brown youth, what happens to them in school? Mm-hmm. What attention do they get? Is it good? Are they going to get pulled out of class to really get resources? Are we going to teach them things? Or is it now like, oh, he has this, so let's push him to the side? Mm-hmm. So for me, I think it's, or for my community, I really think it's labeling. And we just don't know. And we're so afraid. So if we're afraid, we're like locked in. We don't know what to do. And so it's never a conversation to have. Excellent. So uh, I think that's what it Patrick, is. Patrick, why have we nationally uh, been slow, so slow to really address this issue across several disciplines, whether, you know, the mental health side, the juvenile justice side. Why have we been so, so slow to attack this? Well, first of all, I think it reflects a total lack of imagination. I think we as a nation can totally tackle this. Um, you know, in Rhode Island, uh, we had a prevention fund. We got all of the insurers in Rhode Island to dedicate a certain percent of their revenue to a prevention fund. Uh, And it was based upon their per capita uh, coverage in the state. So none of them were at a competitive disadvantage for putting in the fund. And why did they put in the fund? Because they're all going to inherit those kids Mm -hmm. that come from growing up. And we all know life goes by like this. So if they have a fund that can start to pay for things that the bureaucracies can't pay for, then you're going to have kids get all the things that they start to need but can't always have filled in by government services, and those uh, payers are going to have less of a burden. Um, So I think what we need to do is create a financial system that allows for us to get an ROI. Why not apply the rules of the economy to this and say, it costs us too much to ignore these children. 
right away. So we need to intervene. I mean, the costs can all be tracked. We know what they look like. We know the indicators from ACEs. We know how much the correlation. I mean, there's stronger correlation amongst ACEs and childhood delinquency and prison and all host of other costs medically. You can't get stronger correlations. So why do we ignore that data? Uh, it's just a matter of dollars and cents. Forget the lives changed. That if you spent the money up here, you could get cover how many more kids and you could have happier lives all the way around. So why don't we have people just bring in the leading economists and the leading government reform folks, figure out how we can get something going with the CMS trial or something where we, we capture these children um, and provide some kind of government program to fit, fit this because if we're not, we're just you know, siloing the costs and it's going to be borne across many different systems, none of which may see the overall impact of the cost nor the overall impact of the savings if we were to invest uh, early enough on in, in addressing um, those that are high risk. And let me just say poverty, poverty, poverty. If we had the proper poverty policies, policies in our country, and I'm proud my Uncle Sarge Shriver uh, led that uh, effort amongst uh, the great society, and, th th and we had, you know, Head Start, and then we did Early Head Start, and then we did the CHIP program uh, that my father, I'm proud to say, uh, really led that effort. Now we have the ACA. These are the things that help us mitigate the, the trauma from poverty. You know, we can't mitigate the trauma from a mental illness and addiction per se, which is on the rise. So, you know, all those kids underneath those yeah. numbers are being traumatized. Um, the, the, I'm told in some of these states with the opioid crisis, the number of kids in foster care is skyrocketed for obvious reasons. And, and we haven't even talked about that as a nation. We're talking all about the addiction, but not how this all spills over to other areas of, of concern. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Thank you. Uh, Anton, uh, what is preventing the establishment of a Rhode Island type model here in San Francisco has, has, yeah. <laughs> has, has that been considered? Have we looked at that? That's an interesting uh, um, opportunity. And I think that, you know, as Dr. Tulu Shams continues her work and uh, your recent study and the release of that information, I think it's something certain to look at. I mean, San Francisco does have a continuum in place for opportunities for diverting young people. And I think it's important to acknowledge that really important work taking place right now. Um, and also 
there's a, a value for integrating young people back into the home, their homes and into the community as much as possible. And the, the last thing that's interesting happen, taking place in San Francisco is looking at restorative justice. And how do you really truly achieve re rehabilitation for an individual that's gone through such a difficult experience of having, having uh, had a, a, an adverse event happen, maybe being the, the uh, a cause of an adverse event? I think that, you know, it's something that certainly is on the table. There is a blue ribbon panel that's been convened since April of 2019, where experts are coming together from the the law enforcement community, the 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 uh, attorney attorneys, as well as treatment providers and community members to talk about how do you create that next level of, of interventions on behalf of young people. So I think that that's something that we want to certainly include and think about how to deploy. Um, and be thoughtful about going forward. Right. Marina, where does it begin? Where does the, the opportunity to diagnose, identify, and treat a young person who has mental illness begin? Ideally, obviously, before the juvenile justice system. How do we improve uh, that aspect of this problem so that mm -hmm. parents, educators, uh, doctors, yeah. pediatricians are able to, to intervene yeah. earlier? Yes. Great question. Um, I would say that we have windows of opportunity at all of these various points. So there are, and I would agree with um, Anton, that, the, that in this city, we have incredible efforts from diversion and partnering with our CBOs um, around this work that um, we work with them, actually. And so I don't think it's that model and not the others. Um, I think it is about now the sequential intercept map that we're talking about that goes along the continuum of care services. They've actually just recently added an intercept zero. So mm. focusing on community. Mm. So how can we reach in community? So that means like building capacity in the schools, in our pediatric clinics. But I would say that if one window of opportunity that I feel like has not been a focus that I think is a huge opportunity is the very first time a youth is in touch with the justice system. And by that, I mean, even if they're diverted from detention or any type of legal contact, so it could be at the police stage or could be at the court intake stage when they're coming through, um, because we tend to think, oh, well, they don't have as many needs at that point, right? They're, they haven't been as involved in the system. And what our data is showing is that the mental health need is actually much higher than the community need. Um, we're talking about youth coming in one and two have a lifetime history of marijuana use. And that is so 49%, 50%. And that is compared to same age youth from a national survey of only 17% endorsing. Mm. So we're talking about even at just that point, right? We're talking at double the substance use at that first time court contact. So there is a need there. There's a window of opportunity there. And we have to figure out a one, you know, kind of, I think, streamlining and thinking about one way in that we're providing the access to all of those youth to determine the need through the first time court contact. All right. Nicole, when was your, your brother first recognized as having a mental health disorder? Was it at the juvenile justice first interface or was it prior to that? When did you know? Um, well, I'm the youngest. 
and they kept me on a loop for a long time. <laughs> so now I'm like adulting and I find out all this stuff. I'm like, oh my God. Uh, I'm like, oh my God, I need therapy. Um, so I believe my brother was, I know for sure my mom knew. And my mom, like my, you know, the toolkit I kind of talked about beforehand, um, she built his toolkit. So I know she knew that he had signs and symptoms. And so I know like when talking, she, you know, would work with him extensively to be able to sit down, to be able to know when something was going on. Um, But I think clinically, I I think he went all the way until sophomore year in high school. I'm not sure. Um, And that's when he signed, he showed the early stages of like the PTSD from, you know, experience first degree murder uh, at his best friend. And, you know, his best friend died and they missed each other by five minutes. You know, a couple years later, his other best friend died and he, you know, missed him by, I want to say 10 minutes. And so all of this was seen in his later adolescent, but I want to say early 20s. But I know for sure everything is now diagnosed. But that's late. And he's 30. He's He's 30. 30. And we're just now able, and he's now able to be comfortable. And, you know, I had to ask permission to share this. Um, But he's now able to see that, like, I struggled this whole time. And we could have did something. But we didn't know how. And we didn't know who. So What's surprising is that, so when kids go to school, my wife's a public school teacher, you know, they have to get their vaccinations. No, it's a great subject out here. That's <laughs> another time. Uh, they've got to, you know, get their scoliosis. They got to check their eyes. They got to check their ears because they got to be able to learn. And it's amazing that we don't have to check the most important part, and that's their ability to pay attention and process and absorb information, and that we don't employ all that we know about ACEs and the like to help screen these kids proactively Mm. and then make that normal and as part of the process so that it isn't so much about a labeling issue after you might get a red flag and trouble, but that it's kind of incorporated that this is, everyone's got their own place. They got to reach their own end. We're going to help them find that ultimate end and we're going to be here for them. And, you know, that to me is a whole change in ethos and culture around education and education. If it doesn't have social emotional learning, if it doesn't have coping mechanism training and uh, problem-solving skills and role-playing about how to deal with all that stress out there, these kids are going to get rolled over by it. And if they have compounding trauma that they're bringing on top of it, I mean, it's just one of those situations where the risk factors are so great. And I think schools uh, really need to be... uh, uh, an important place of intersection. I think, yeah. though, that we're making progress. And I think Good. in California in particular, with you know the recent support at the state level for standardizing ACES usage among primary care providers, that is a major step forward to make sure that young people are being consistently screened. And I was just thinking about your, 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 uh, what you were talking about with your family, Nicole, and I want to say I'm very sad about the experience that they had, which is not being able to have someone recognize what was happening 
and being able to respond in, in a meaningful way soon enough um, to be able to intervene. But I, I think it's also important to acknowledge what I refer to as intergenerational trauma. And I have to wonder about the experience of family members um, who have, uh, are dealing with a loved one who is incarcerated, or even a young person, or even that young person's outlook on life when they have an older loved one who is experiencing incarceration. All of those, those um, hits matter. And I think that our system does need to be thoughtful about how do you not only support the young person that's in the midst of that situation, but the family unit, because there may be others that are coming after them that might be impacted. And so I'm trying to think, who do I want to respond to? <laughs> you all brought up such great points. Um, I will, from a recency perspective, I, um, what Dr. Bland said about the ACEs rollout and the screening and um, that's going to be implemented statewide. Um, I'm going to say something perhaps a little controversial here. Um, I am absolutely a proponent of ACEs screening in the data that we have been talking about with the first time court involved youth average number of ACEs, right? Dr. State said was three at age 14 and a half years old. And what we found was that for those who had higher numbers of abuse and neglect ACEs, one, uh, excuse me, 12 months later, they had significantly higher psychiatric symptoms and substance use. So when I say this is an opportunity, <laughs> to intervene, it's a huge opportunity. Like those kids who we did the assessment with, we should have been intervening with them at that point because we could have actually prevented potentially that increase in psychiatric symptoms and substance use onset and then the legal ramifications of that that we know happen. And so the controversial part of what I want to say is in talking and being a provider and being with the providers on the ground is what's the intervention response to that screening? We're all very concerned because we haven't figured out the intervention response. And you're, we've talked before, I know, Nicole, and, you know, your brother did have access to, like, some screenings and, and certain things, right? It was kind of hit or miss, like we talked about in school. But what was the intervention response? Mm -hmm. It wasn't there. It wasn't. It wasn't there. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, these are all the missed opportunities. So, yes, in the schools, completely agree. And I would say we need to think about it directly for youth who are coming in to the justice system because your brother had earlier contact, right? Like mm -hmm. we've talked about. And so what, what a lost opportunity that could have been. That's been the really the beauty of um, the court clinic model because it is there and it is destigmatized. So that was the other part I want to say because now it has become a standard practice that you go and you become involved with the court your first time and it's like, here we have these services. It's not labeling. It's not um, stigmatized in the same way of go to this, you know, mental health clinic. It's like go downstairs and your family can also go downstairs mm -hmm. and you go together and you talk together with what the needs are with mental health professionals. So um, I think that it, it deeply saddens me, Nicole, about what your family has gone through from the, from the perspective of I, what I feel like is a failing of our mental health system to be able to support in the ways that we actually know how to do from how to deliver the interventions and what program treatments to give, but we can't, we have to figure out a response. As, as the, uh, 
As we continue to work to, uh, to identify and help young people at an earlier stage through the education system, their family physicians, et cetera, et cetera, let me talk for a moment, direct this to you, Anton. What do we do tonight for the juvenile that will be arrested tonight, potentially by the San Francisco Police Department with their first interaction with the juvenile justice system? How do we train police officers to, and they have a lot on their shoulders, admittedly, but how do we train them to uh, identify and perhaps begin the process of helping that child before strictly incarceration? That's a really interesting opportunity to work with the law enforcement. I've spent the past several years helping to train law enforcement uh, staff about behavioral health conditions, helping them to understand and distinguish between mental illness and substance use issues, and to be able to engage with those individuals in the throes of a crisis in a way that leads to a, a more positive outcome. And I, I think that, that we need to continue to invest in that kind of work what we term as crisis intervention training for our law enforcement in San Francisco. I think we also have to be thoughtful about creating more divergent opportunities immediately. And that is a, is a gap for our system right now, for our law enforcement staff to have an immediate place to direct a young person without going through additional processing. Um, we are in the process now for the city and county of developing uh, our first drug sobering center. And this particular program is geared and being designed for individuals who are experiencing the consequences of methamphetamine use. I'm really excited about this opportunity because when we think about people's involvement in the justice system, creating at that intercept zero, as, as Marina was referring to, this opportunity to move people into a safe space to receive support, not with law enforcement, but with trained medical healthcare professionals is essential. And so I think that we want to be thoughtful about how do we create that similar opportunity in real time for law enforcement so that they, they can have an, an, an avenue, another resource to extend in a moment. Okay. And I do want to add that um, in San Francisco, we have the Community Assessment Referral mm -hmm. Center, the CARC, um, that is um, run by Huckleberry House and does an outstanding job with their diversion program. And when you talk to the community and you talk to CARC and you talk, the question is, well, how do some kids get right. to diversion and then other kids are going to detect? Like, well, how is that decision being made at the law enforcement level? And so there's a lot of work to be done to think about, you know, should youth be somehow screened for like uh, certain mental health things? And then that plays into the decision um, about you know, where they go. Is there and an inherent unfairness in that system without uh, question? Uh, racial bias, um, socioeconomic uh, status, yes, uh, gender identity. I mean, you know, um, we haven't actually even talked about the multiple marginalizations and intersectionalities actually within our justice-involved mm -hmm. population. Um, so. All right. Um, Patrick brought up the touchy subject of vaccinations. I want to direct a touchy subject question to Patrick once again. Uh, and that is uh, drug use and the legalization of marijuana here and in many other states. Uh, talk, if you can, from your perspective on the nexus between uh, drug use, youth mental illness, juvenile justice. Well, first of all, there's clearly a, a huge challenge in our country to address the systemic problem of embedded racism and racial, racial bias within our criminal justice system that has led to the enormous overrepresentation of minorities in, in the correctional system and the total correction system of this country. Uh, that has to be attacked. 
And I believe that there are plenty of ways to go at that. But what, what diminishes our ability to really attack that head on is when there are those, especially corporate uh, tobacco, the new big corporate tobacco, that want to conflate taking on the overrepresentation of minorities in the criminal justice system with their profit motive, which is to try to get more people hooked uh, on their product. And it, it, it is interesting that we bought on to this masquerade and, and instead of really addressing the real issue, which is uh, pre-adjudication decriminalization, what we did is we jumped all the way to commercialization, um, you know, and there was no thought in between, you know, once we were going down that road. And I think that we've decided already, because there's a big settlement with Purdue Pharma right now, right, because they oversold the amount of Oxycontins that were really necessary to treat pain in this country. They knew it was an addictive substance. It was very profitable, so they kept selling. They, it corrupted the whole process of regulatory oversight. They basically bought off FDA and everything else to create these sham indices that incentivized more prescribing of pain medications. And what I'm saying is we all bemoan that but right now, we are giving license to a new profit addiction industry um, and that we as a nation will never be able to get our arms around. And, you know, with alcohol, um, we have just totally, you know, give them the keys to the store. You know, it used to be, and it couldn't advertise hard stuff on the, uh, now it doesn't matter, you see it everywhere. <clears throat> and that's because the lobbyist, there's more lobbyists per member of Congress and state legislator from the liquor industry than anywhere else, other than maybe the oil and gas. And, and that's why you see the environment the way it's, it's been uh, treated, and that's why we see uh, the, the fact that alcohol it claims over 100,000 Americans a year. We never talk about alcohol. Um, so, and, and, and if there's 13 times as many liquor stores in, in uh, black and brown neighborhoods than white neighborhoods, it should tell you a little something about what we're going to expect uh, with the uh, commercialization of marijuana. So I just think from a public health crisis, we're going to see anxiety rates for our young people skyrocket because they're now all growing up with devices. And that means they're not going to have that human interaction where one person's looking at the other in the eyes and they're, everyone's distracted and busy. And so when they're struck with stress, their anxiety is going to go off the charts. What do you think they're going to reach for? Something that's easy to obtain. And when, when you see gummy bears with THC, I mean, I have to say, I, I smoked marijuana as a teenager, but I tried to hide everybody from smelling it. <laughs> now, if I went back in time, I wouldn't have to hide it because I could just get a couple gummy bears. I, I, in fact, I wouldn't even, I could go to the refrigerator and hide my Fanta grape aids because now they're putting the THC in the grape Fanta and grape soda. So I'm just saying, like, that's the degree to which we've already sanctioned this. And, uh, and as Matt knows, and as any neuroscientist knows, 
This puts people, maybe who already have a predisposition to psychosis, at a huge, huge uh, risk. Um, and, and, you know, of course, no, there's other drugs, too, that they're talking about uh, commercializing. But um, I, uh, can, uh, can you tell you? You hit, you, you hit a nerve on that, Dan. I did. And it was a nerve pretty close to the surface. <laughs> but, but, you know, what you describe is really quite disturbing for our future. Where do you think this is heading? Well, I, again, I think we need to be about addressing the fact that the consequences purely on an economical. So, you know, I love what USF, UCSF and others have done to try to move into this capturing how to understand the brain, right? It should be the frontier for our generation. If Joe Biden hadn't stolen the moonshot analogy for cancer, <laughs> I have to say he stole it from me because I used it against, uh, the, I said it should be the brain, should be the brain that's the new frontier and that we should think about instead of going to the outer space, we ought to go to inner space <laughs> and that, that our neuroscientists ought to be our astronauts for our generation because what they do is so important to the future, whether it's Alzheimer's to addiction. It's all the same brain. And we need to understand this thing because uh, addiction is killing us and sapping us and Alzheimer's and dementia is sapping us. And if we don't start to move the margins on either one, we're not going to have a CMS. We're not going to have any discretionary dollars. And everything we care about in terms of protecting the environment and education is not going to have enough to do. So um, what I'm saying is this has got to be a holistic to the doctor's point, comprehensive solution. And if we can have IBM Watson be able to do, you know, AI, why the hell can we do AI in our governmental programs and say, let's do a social impact bond. Let's invest in all these kids early because literally we can track the savings. I hate to make it as bases the money. And I know I keep coming back to it, but I get to, because with my last name being Kennedy, you know I'm already in it for the, for the liberal policies. But now I'm trying to, for the few conservatives and business people out there that I'm trying to win over, because we've got everyone else. This is reaching hit. across the aisle. Is right, this is called reaching across the aisle. Um, just do the... Do the math. If we did a global impact bond for neuroscientists and we shaved a few years off of the time people have dementia, if we could do that for the time that these are uh, illnesses of the young. So, you know, they carry them for their whole life. They're disabled forever. And why wouldn't you intercede where you can actually change the trajectory in these children's lives in a fundamental way? And as opposed to just kind of, you know, along the margins, because, oh, that program isn't that funded, and this program isn't that, and so, as opposed to just take that child and put the child where the child needs to be. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little dollars and cents, Anton. Let me uh, <clears throat> ask you about uh, the, the cost savings, what studies have been done, or what are you aware of, from diversion programs versus incarceration, mm -hmm. both short and long term? That's an interesting question. I, I wouldn't have the data about specific figures to be, able, to be able to provide on that. But I do want to echo, you know, Patrick's comments around the value of, of 
understanding the role of substances in, in people's mental illness and experience. And having spent time treating young people that are using marijuana and seeing the consequences of that marijuana use on their development, I'm, I've been very concerned with the, with the liberalization that we're seeing around marijuana use. And in, in my experience, there are several young people who are using marijuana who are dealing with significant trauma. And they're using this substance as a way to manage those symptoms and those <clears throat> concerns. That's right. But unfortunately, they come to see me because it, it, at some point it's not working. And we are then kind of at a loss as to how to help them next and, and to move forward. I think that the, you know, we, we want to focus in on the cost savings and building effective programs that can provide the services. Um, but sometimes you have to just choose to do the right thing irrespective of the amount of the savings. And that's a very different, different and a difficult conversation to have sometimes to make those investments up front without waiting to see if there's any, any long-term financial benefit because we know that the individual's health will be better. And we didn't, as the debate raged in California around the country over legalization of marijuana, this aspect of the conversation or the, the issue really wasn't discussed widely. And I wonder why not. Why didn't we discuss the impact on young people uh, as we have tonight? It just wasn't part of the conversation. The, the rush was the money, the tax dollars. Um, Anyone? Yeah, yeah. Tax, that's no, it. That's, so in New Jersey, where I live now, it, it was the what's going to plug the budget gap. So, uh, and the interesting thing in New Jersey, the effort to defeat it was led by the uh, the Black Caucus in the State House in the legislature because of the impact that there's no there was no there was the realization that um, black youth weren't going to be let off the hook by a bias that still exists if it's not checked within the criminal justice system because it's not arresting someone for marijuana, they're going to arrest them for something else. And meanwhile, you know, wealthy kids can get treatment. Mm -hmm. Wealthy kids, you know, it's a different ability to get the help. If you don't have that access, you know, you're going to be really stuck um, with that, that uh, challenge that, that comes with the, having a dependency and addiction to, to uh, marijuana. All right, before we, we run out of time, I want to talk about something that, that's extremely <clears throat> important in this debate, or this national debate, and that is the crisis we face here in this area, the Bay Area, California, and now the country in greater numbers, and that, that is homelessness. Mm -hmm. 150,000 people <coughs> are homeless in California, which is a shocking number. And uh, Anton, let me start with you in San Francisco. Uh, we know that so, a significant number of percentage of homeless people on our streets have mental health issues. And I suspect, as we've talked about tonight, many of those issues began very young in their lives, mm -hmm. exacerbated perhaps by drug and alcohol use. Let's talk about the impact uh, of homelessness uh, on, on this city and how um, our failure in some respects to identify mental illness earlier has led to greater homelessness. And what can we do about it? I think that, you know, when we talk about homelessness in San Francisco, it's, it's a topic that piques everyone's interest. We know that there are at least 18,000 individuals in San Francisco as of the previous fiscal year who are experiencing homelessness. 
And the team that I work with in reviewing our data identified that there was a, a subset of this, these individuals who were experiencing the serious mental illness, things like psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder with, with psychosis, as well as substance use. And we're, we're talking about methamphetamine use, alcohol use, opio, opioid use, um, and cocaine use. And those individuals are, are not only psychiatrically sick, but physically quite sick. Yeah. Seventy percent of them have spent time in the medical emergency rooms repeatedly over the course of the year. But there's another interesting finding among this population, which is many people would, would, would make an assumption that so many homeless people are using methamphetamine. What our data suggests is that 95 percent of these individuals have an alcohol related problem. Mm -hmm. It's alcohol that's driving their utilization of the medical emergency room. And it's likely alcohol that's continuing to perpetuate their experience of homelessness in a way, not to mention the mental, the serious mental illness. And so in San Francisco, we are taking steps to begin addressing the needs of the behavioral health clients. There's there's a, a fantastic initiative on coming online. No place like home to establish 500 plus new housing units dedicated for behavioral health clients with those special needs. And I'm very excited about that project, but it's going to take some time. It's going to be a few years off before those units come online. And so to your question, what do we do in the interim and how do we begin to meet those needs in the interim? And so our, our, what we're doing now is we're taking account of our, our stock. We're holding accountability around getting people into programs. We're creating new services, as I mentioned, like our drug sobering center. And we're, we're doing this thoughtfully, but we're also making sure we're using the evidence in a way that's going to help inform this. We know what kinds of things work to meet the needs of this population. We have to simply scale it up. Marina? Um, to your question of why, why aren't we focusing on the youth or what happened with the youth in this conversation, I think um, as child mental health professionals and child advocates, we really ask that question a lot and have to say it very loudly um, in lots of different areas. And so um, actually what Dr. Bland and I have been talking about is kind of what is the city going to think about in terms of prevention? We send 65% of our foster care youth out of county. We separate them from their families to the point where they cannot reach them, be in touch with them in any sort of way because we don't have the placement options here. And so what does that do for residential instability upon coming back? Or can they come back? Or when they come back, how well does it go? Because they've had no contact, really therapeutic contact with their family to build the reentry opportunity. It is not anyone's fault. It's the resource is not there and the system doesn't support it. And so from a, like what we're thinking about from a prevention perspective, for example, are the foster care youth who are aging out of the system are young adults and transitioning into independent living. That is an incredibly vulnerable developmental period for substance use, for early psychosis, <laughs> for homelessness, um, employment. And so I think we really need to kind of start really I, I understand we have to address our adult homelessness crisis, but they started as children, like you're saying. And so there has to be some thought of how we're going to move Should toward prevention. Should we extend the deadline for uh, the age limit for emancipation? Should we can not cut them loose at 18? Um, well, actually, we don't. Um, so they can opt into extended foster care, and the majority of youth do. So we hold them until they're 21 in terms of holding them in terms of services. So that's a huge opportunity here that we take. Is that again, fairly new? 
that we've, or has that been around for a while? I, I think that's been around for okay. a little while. Yeah. So, um, but the services to support that are, you know, continue to need to build and to think about. And um, so on the mental health side, but I would say we should extend down even earlier because those data we were talking about earlier is age 14. Okay. Interesting. So. All right. We are almost out of time. I want to go around to each panelist and ask a final question. Uh, Anton, I'll start with you. Uh, if you were to prioritize and you can speak specifically in San Francisco, but it will translate to other communities, of course, here and around the country. If you were to prioritize job one in terms of what we need to do first to really begin to make a bigger difference in keeping, identifying juvenile mental health issues and keeping them out of incarceration and homelessness, what would you say is the most important thing we need to do? I'm gonna support what Marina mentioned earlier, which is, with the new screening process for ACEs, we have a great opportunity to understand earlier when people are being affected, when young people are being affected. But we also need to build out the programs to be able to support those young people once they've been identified. And I think that it's going to be an, an, an incumbent upon us to, to press uh, our legislators to actually support and endorse creating funding mechanisms to fund those kinds of services. And, and it's really a challenge right now um, uh, to meet those kinds of needs. Okay, thank you. Nicole, uh, ever since your brother got involved in uh, the juvenile justice system, uh, how has your perspective on the juvenile justice system changed? What have you learned about it and what the needs are? Uh, well, I'm biased, hands down. I'm biased. If I see a kid outside, I'm, I'm going to jump out the car and be like, oh my God, no, I'm biased. But mm. I feel like my voice is that of my community. We're all biased and we're scared. And some most kids are taught an emergency down 911. That's not what we're taught. If it's an emergency, call mom. You're not going to call law enforcement. I'm not going to seek the justice system. They've oppressed more than help. And a, a couple questions ago, um, I, I wanted to mention um, in the program that I work in, we have three SFPD cohorts of youth. And last year was our biggest group. And the kids, we had kids that parents came down and were like, they cannot be a part of this cohort. They're not comfortable. And we respect that. But our director, my director, Cheryl Davis, challenged each kid to take this time as a platform to educate the law enforcement, educate the attorney general, the district attorney, the court, all of these people on your voice. What's going on? Um, because we're here for youth, um, but who's listening to them? Interesting, mm -hmm. right? Because if we listen, they'll tell us. So mm -hmm. I think, I think, back to your question, okay. I think that's the key. All right, excellent. Thank you, Nicole. Patrick, uh, uh, look to the future. What, what do we need to do as a country? And where do you think we're really headed? We, there's a very unnerving uh, thoughts about where the uh, drug use may take us in this country. What do you think we need to focus on? Uh, well, I mean, I think we just go back to community. I think at the end of the day, we need to have community-based support services that are integrated, that we're not, you know, siloing this stuff, that, that we address the kind of a lot of the data sharing and information sharing that is so important for coordination. As I said, my wife's a public school teacher, had no idea that her class, uh, kids in her class 
were also uh, the younger siblings of kids that her other colleagues uh, had whose parents were in jail and she had no knowledge about that. None of the teachers had any awareness uh, that, that the children in their class had serious challenges and all they can do is send them to dis- to, for discipline. Mm-hmm. And so we have to have a fundamental appreciation that our education system has to change in major, major ways. Um, and that's, uh, but I love the SCL. I love training teachers. Like uh, we ought to have the Center for Social Emotional Learning. It's about a school base. They train the custodians. They train the principals. They train the teachers. They pr- train everybody. And they, what they do is make it, instead of waiting for one child to fall off, they treat all children as part of the family at the school and the bus drivers and all the rest. And they even identify who is going to be that trusted adult in that child that maybe quickly checks in with the child when they're coming in, checks with the child as the child is leaving. I mean, we need to kind of go at this like full on, not like, oh, we're going to dance around it and deal with this over here. And, oh, we're going to get a nice little program over here. Um, we have to talk about this not as a, a, a matter of a couple of kids with aces. And frankly, it should be something as to how do we address the culture of the school and all kids. Um, and, you know, even teach the kids to be compassionate with one another and to be supportive of one another so that we're avoiding exacerbating this stuff um, where, where the kids right. end up not able to support each other because they don't know the mechanisms to be able, able to be most helpful to their fellow peers. All right. Thank you. Community. Uh, Marina, <clears throat> last word. I am a Bay Area native, even though we've been talking about Rhode Island, and um, and I've been Don't supporting give us that. <laughs> we love you. We, we. And I have been in awe of the brain power resources and and options here in the Bay Area for youth. And all I can say is that we have the ability and the power to work together to bring all of this forward if we can just all pull it together, we, we, can, we, can, we can do this. Okay. We can really do it. Well, with that, we'll conclude. Uh, a big hand to our panelists, please. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Anton Negussi-Bland, Director of Mental Health Reform at the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Nicole Elmore, Community Youth Activist and Program Assistant at Opportunities for All, Mayor London London Breed's Youth Initiative for Workforce Development. Uh, Patrick Kennedy, former U.S. Congressman and Mental Health Advocate. And Dr. Marina uh, Toulouse-Shams, Professor at the UCSF Department of Psychiatry. Uh, One more hand for this terrific... I wish to tell you that tonight's program has been part of the Commonwealth Club series on mental health dedicated in memory of uh, Nancy Friend Pritzker with support from the John Pritzker Family Fund. We are very grateful for that. And we also thank you. We also thank our audiences here and on radio, television and the Internet. I'm Dan Ashley. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan.